I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll consider today verses 5 through 10, and the message is entitled, Delivered, and the hope is that we can be delivered because Jesus is alive. We reflect on and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on this commemorative Sunday each year that we call commonly Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But the reality is every time that the church gathers together on Sunday, it's a reminder that Christ is risen and that he is to be celebrated and exalted and glorified because he overcame death, hell, and the grave. And as we think about the resurrection, we understand that it's central to our faith and it's central to our faith for several reasons. It's a witness to the power of God. We, uh, when we believe in the resurrection, are stating that we believe there is a supernatural God who can do things that only he can do. This does not come from man. The resurrection is a witness of Jesus, that his identity was authenticated as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, and as the long-awaited Messiah. And the resurrection is a promise of our own resurrection, because we know that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But if we are in Christ, we can have the hope of life, meaning that when we die on this earth, our soul goes immediately to be in the presence of God. Our body goes to await the final resurrection that because Christ has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. So ultimately, it is a triumphant victory for every believer, and it is the promise of future hope. As followers of Jesus, we are to hold fast to our faith, recognizing that Jesus holds fast to us, and the reason we'll make it across the finish line is the grace with which God saved us is the same grace with which he will sustain us and complete the good work in us that he has started. And that's the message that we really come into contact with in 1 Thessalonians from this man called the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul went to the city the ancient city of Thessalonica, and he preached the gospel. He did what he often did. He would go into the synagogue and begin to proclaim Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. And there in the synagogue, there were some Jews who believed. They came and followed Jesus. But according to the scripture, it seems that even more Gentiles believed in Jesus and came to follow him. And as often happens, the gospel being a stumbling stone and a rock of offense caused some turmoil in that city. And the Jews who did not believe in the gospel began to stir up trouble. So Paul and his missionary associates had to leave the city and go to another place to continue their ministry. And as you might imagine, being the one who had planted the church in Thessalonica, Paul was interested to know what was happening. He'd not been there very long. He wanted to know if that church had taken root and if they were growing or if they were healthy. And he knew that they were going to deal with persecution and hardships, and he wants to know what's going on. So he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report. Timothy comes back with the report, and Paul is most encouraged by what he hears. The church was healthy. It was growing. They were loving one another. They were loving the world who needed to know Christ. They were holding fast to their faith, and the gospel was going forth from that city. Paul, encouraged by what he heard about the church, wrote this letter back, 1 Thessalonians, to the church to both encourage and instruct the believers there. The message that we find in the opening verses is a message that reminds us about their work of faith and the importance of our own work of faith, their labor of love and the importance of our own labor of love, and also their endurance of hope and the importance of our endurance in, in hope 
when we follow Jesus. And that's where we pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. Here's what the Bible says. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But in every place that your faith in God has gone out, the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You might have seen in the news this week, there was a story about something that took place about 135 miles off of the coast of Thailand. There were some Chevron oil rig workers who were going about their day and they look out beyond the oil rig and they see a dog swimming as furiously as he can toward the oil rig. Now imagine 135 miles off the coast. Where has this dog come from? He's trying to make it to the place of safety. He needs to be rescued and delivered. So those oil rig workers got a rope and they put a, a, a basically a noose, but not to hang him with, to rescue him with, and lowered it down and pulled the dog safely up out of the water. And one of the oil rig workers said that that dog was looking at him and just looking like he was saying, please help me, help me, rescue me. And they took the dog to the port, checked him out. Turns out he's okay. He's healthy. They think that he might have fallen off of a fishing trawler or something. And they named the dog Boonrod, which means survivor. And if nobody claims him, which is likely, meaning uh, figuring that he was out in the middle of the ocean, uh, one of those workers is going to adopt him. That's just a simple little story about the predicament that that dog found himself in. But I want to tell you something much more serious. And that is, we find ourselves in a predicament And we need to be rescued. We find ourselves in a predicament and in need of deliverance. And what we have is not a momentary predicament. It is an eternal predicament if we are not in Christ and only God can deliver us. Verse 5 says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, words are important. After all, that's how we communicate the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. It's his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Paul wrote in that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are words And these words contain the message. And not only does it come, though, in words, according to the scripture, the gospel also comes in power. That's what he says in verse 5. And it is the power of God unto salvation. That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God and to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So this word comes in power and it comes in the Holy Spirit, meaning that the gospel is a message communicated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has the responsibility to exalt Jesus and to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's only the Holy Spirit that can get to the depths of a person's soul and bring them to the place of conviction and bring them to the place of faith, bring them to the place of regeneration and justification in Christ. It is a message of power that comes in word in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. The gospel is communicated so that we can have confidence in the word that we're hearing. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. It's not a human construct of religion. It's not something that someone is just imagining. This is something that is rooted in the assurance of truth. And the missionaries that went to Thessalonica were a good example to the people there. They they drew them in so that they could hear about the gospel. But the people, when they heard the gospel, considered it They welcomed it, they believed it, it rang out from them, and it ended up going to every place. So we got to ask ourselves the question, what was it that happened there in that place when the good news was proclaimed so that they would be transformed like they were and so that they could be useful to God? Or to put the question in a more direct way, what has to happen in your life and in my life so that we can welcome the message of Jesus and then share it with others. First point is this. You need to consider the gospel. You need to consider the gospel. Verse 6 says you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be clear about what this message is. The message refers to the message about Jesus. It is the message of the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. It's a word that appears some 70 times in the New Testament, and there are several aspects of the gospel that give us further insight into what's being communicated. The gospel is from God, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. So it is something that has come from God. It originated with God. God is the first mover. God is the one who cares. He's the one who has acted on behalf of his creation. So the gospel is of divine origin and not human origin. And because it comes from God, then it is God's right to offer it as a gift and to bring people to saving faith. The gospel is true, according to Colossians 1 and verse 5, where it says the word of truth, the gospel... Now remember something is true, corresponds with what is right. God embodies righteousness, so he defines what is right and true. And because his character is trustworthy, what he communicates to us can be believed. And it's the gospel who brings, that brings salvation through Jesus. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 and verse 13. Now, in our offertory prayer this morning, Brother Rob mentioned John 3.16. John 3.16 is arguably the most well-known verse in all the world. Uh, It appears in some unlikely places as well as some likely places like here 
this morning. You see it at sporting events when the guy's holding up the sign in the end zone where the camera can hit it, and it's John 3.16. It appears on cups and plates sometimes in secular restaurants or restaurants that have uh, some type of spiritual background to them. And it even showed up in Keith Urban's country song, John Cougar, John Deere, and John 3.16. So you find John 3.16 nearly everywhere. In 2009, when Tim Tebow was still playing college football, he wrote on his eye black, John 3.16, on a game that was nationally televised. They say that 94 million people Googled John 3.16 the day that he did that. And you might be familiar with John 3.16. It might be like an old, old story to you. It's as familiar to you as your own name. But the question is, have you truly considered what it means for God. What did God do? God created this world in holiness. All that he made was good. He gave his creation the opportunity and the responsibility to exercise free will. They misused it and disobeyed God. So God had to act on our behalf. He chose to act out of his grace toward us Without that, there would have been no way of deliverance. So what did he do? God so loved the world. The world's people like us. The message of the gospel is that that God loves you. The message of the gospel is that he's done something for you out of his super abundant and overflowing love that only God can do. To undeserving sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the very idea that God loved the world in this way is a reminder that God wants people to be saved. God wants people to come into his everlasting family. And what he did was he gave his one and only son to do what nobody else could do. You understand what Christ has done. We're not here today for some meager recognition of something that happened long ago. We are coming here in worship of the king. And when we really reflect on what God has done in his son... It is a profoundly transforming experience when we come to him and we consider what he has done. Because it was Jesus who who left the glory of heaven and he entered into this mess of the world that we live in. He got involved amongst us in, in all of the darkness and the brokenness and the loss and the disappointment and the pain. And he was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. And Jesus willingly laid down his life for us and he went to a cross that he did not deserve. And he took the wrath of God upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God. You understand that every sin that we have ever committed and every sin that we ever will commit was laid on Jesus. Because God loved the world, and he was buried in a barred tomb. And on the third day, he was gloriously raised from the dead. He ascended back into heaven some days later to the right hand of God the Father. And today, right now, in this moment, he is interceding on your behalf. He is praying for you, and he is awaiting his return And he did this so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God provided salvation in Jesus. It's not automatic. It's a gift. A gift has to be received. A gift has to be taken as one's own. And that leads me to the second point. You need to believe the gospel and turn to God. You need to believe the gospel and turn to God. Look again in verse 8. 
and verse 9, it says that the message of the Lord rang out, not only where they were, but in every place that their faith in God had gone out. And they had received a good report, but here was the most important part of this report. How they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So Paul mentions the reception that he had when he went to Thessalonica. He talks about the way the gospel was received in their midst. And he recognizes the problem. And the problem was this, don't miss it. The people were focusing on all the wrong things. They were headed in the wrong direction. And I don't know a lot, but I know this. If you're going in the wrong direction, you'll end up in the wrong destination. If you want to end up in the right destination, you've got to be headed in the right direction. And if you think you're going to heaven, but your life is headed toward hell, you're going in the wrong direction. And the message is that you need to turn around. That you need to repent. That you need to come the way that God wants you to come. And Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for the way is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And many will find it. But how narrow is the gate and how difficult is the road that leads to life. And few will find it. A couple of years ago, a man by the name of Eob Faniel was running in the Venice Marathon. And I don't know if you watch any of these marathons or not, but these people are world-class athletes. I mean, they are phenomenal athletes. So you had the leading pack that's out in front of the rest of them, and they're moving along at a good clip. They're maybe even on a world record pace, and they're headed toward the conclusion. And somewhere along the course, about 16 miles in, the motorcycle guide that was in front of them took a wrong turn. Imagine this, they've been training, they were ready, they got to the place where they were uh, well into the marathon and the motorcycle takes a wrong turn. Well, you know what most of the leading pack did? They followed him, but Faniel stayed on the right path. He just kept running. He kept going in the direction he was supposed to go in. But you know what happened to the rest of them? They got off track by several hundred meters and had to double back and come back. And as a result, they lost the race. Now, you know what's really good about that? They had an opportunity to run again. Oh, they did. It was a bad race that day. Only one won it, but they had the opportunity to run again. But you know what happens for us in this life? We got one life to live. We've got one opportunity to spend. We have one time to follow God or to go in the wrong direction, and we don't get any do-overs. When our life on this earth is over and we step out into eternity, We're going to be at the destination that we have chosen, either remaining in our sins, separated from God, or in heaven with God forever. They turned from idols. What's an idol? An idol is anything that distracts you from worship of the one true living God. Idolatry was a major problem in the Bible. The first and the second of the Ten Commandments are directed toward idolatry of every form, and that is because God demands allegiance And I doubt in this Western 21st century context today that anybody rolled into the parking lot this morning with an idol on their dash. I doubt that when you go home and you look at the centerpiece of your living room or your den that you've got idols set up there that you go home and worship. But the idols that we are tempted toward are much more insidious. 
Because sometimes they can even be things that look like they're good things and they might not be inherently sinful, but when they take our allegiance away from God, then they become idols for us. So what we don't do by faith, we are in effect depending on something or someone else other than our creator, and that is a risky, risky proposition. It could be the idol of self. It could be other people. It could be power that the world clamors after. It could be position or some type of authority. It could be uh, some type of possession that we're holding on to. It could be the pleasures of this life. And they all cause us not to believe the gospel and turn to God, but to go in the wrong direction. But note what they did in Thessalonica, and this is what we must do. They turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. They turned to God alone and they trusted in Jesus to deliver them from their sins. I love this word turned. It occurs numerous times in the Bible, particularly in the book of Acts, often to denote what it means to turn away from the world and to turn toward God. Paul described God's commission of him as opening the Gentiles' eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 26 and verse 18. Paul also summarized his own preaching as telling people in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20 that they should repent and turn to God. And do you know that's the same message of the gospel preacher today? Did you know that's the same message that must be held up front and center in all that the church does? As we proclaim Jesus, we are calling to people and telling them that they must turn from whatever it is that they're following to come and to serve and follow the living God. That they must turn from their own sin and embrace the Savior. They must turn from hell and embrace heaven. You see how incredibly important it is that we not only consider the gospel but that we believe the gospel and that we turn to God. And when they did that, God delivered them from their sins as he will deliver us from our sins. But in order for Jesus to deliver us from God's wrath to come, we have to understand that judgment is coming, that God is holy, and we have to understand what God has done for us in Christ and embrace him, receive him, follow him, and repentance and faith. Now, that leads me to my third and final point. You need to hope in the gospel. Scripture says here in verse 10 that they turned to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Now, before the incarnation of Jesus, when he first entered into this world as a man, there was, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 400 years of a period that's called the period of silence. Now, obviously, God was still at work. God was still moving and uh, blessing his people. He was still working toward his plan uh, of redemption being revealed in the world. But as you might imagine, there were a lot of people that started to lose hope they started to forget what God had done. They wondered, is there really going to be a day of redemption for the nation? Is there really going to be a promised Messiah, as the Bible has told us that there will be? And there was this man named Simeon who was righteous and devout. In fact, the scripture says that he was an officiating priest of sorts by virtue of what he was doing, not necessarily by the designation of his title, but here's what he was doing. He was awaiting the consolation of Israel 
and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So moved by the Holy Spirit, he went into the temple courts and Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to be consecrated as they were to do under the law. And Simeon took Jesus into his arms and praised God. And here's what he said, Luke chapter two and verse 29 and following. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Here's what Paul wrote in Titus 2 and verse 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Simeon was awaiting the first coming of Jesus. We await the second coming of Jesus. Simeon prepared himself and continued to serve God as he awaited that first coming of Jesus. And now we prepare ourselves to serve God as we await the second coming of Jesus. And the way that we are to do that is by denying godlessness and worldly lust and to say yes to godly living. And you understand that the first appearing of Jesus Christ was in grace, bringing salvation, but his second appearing will be in great glory, completing the good work that he has started in us, but also bringing judgment upon those who have not believed. God has entrusted all judgment to the Son, and Jesus will judge in righteousness. So if your hope is in Christ and Christ alone, you will live with a sense of eager anticipation, and you will wait, as the Bible indicates, with confident expectation and with hope. And when we hope in Jesus, it is a blessed hope. When we wait and hope in Jesus, it is a visible hope. It is the appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And from the time Jesus came to this earth, people wanted to see him. You remember Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree so that he could see Jesus. John said, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him like he is. That's what we're waiting for. We're not just here on Sunday morning to do our religious exercise. We're not just here when it's convenient. We're not just here when it fits into some type of blessing that we're seeking or some type of crisis that we're trying to avert. We are here worshiping the risen Lord and we are proclaiming that there is a Christ, a Jesus who came to this world and gave his life for us and that he's worthy of our very best to the point that we would hope in the gospel and it is a glorious hope. Consider the gospel. That's what some of you need to do. Oh, you've been to Easter Sunday church before. This is nothing new to you. Most of you, this is something you've heard over and over again. But if you're not a Christian, I am pleading with you that you would consider what is being said. And that you not, not only would you consider it, but that you would believe and turn to God. And that we as the people of God would hope in him. And when we do, this is what happens. Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. That's what the scripture says here. 
Now, I think the scripture may be referring to the wrath of the great tribulation, because that's certainly an issue that Paul's going to deal with a little, little bit later on in Thessalonians, but it most certainly refers to the wrath of God that is to come upon unbelieving sinners. In the finished work of Jesus, God both manifests his gracious love toward us, and at the same time, he clearly demonstrates his commitment to righteousness and to justice. That justice is served by the work of Jesus, who has satisfied the demands of God's righteousness. And he extends to us grace and mercy if we'll come to him and believe. This is the message of Jesus.